like to kind of give you the setting of where we're at here in John chapter 7, just to kind of get your minds back up to speed. We're at that time where it's taking place in what was considered one of the most joyous festivals in Israel. Now, you remember, Israel, they're always having a festival. They have, you know, their spring festivals. They have their fall festivals. These very special religious holidays that were there for the people and their remembrance of God's faithfulness. The festival that we're looking at right now is the last of the fall festivals. It is the Feast of Tabernacles, or also known as the Feast of Booths. Uh, in Hebrew, they call it Sukkot. Um, and also, just to tell you, these things flashing is because the wire that runs back to the computer is a little messed up from all the constant plugging and unplugging. So sorry about that side distraction there. Um, so this Feast of Tabernacles, it was the one feast where they were specifically commanded to rejoice. When you hear of, like, the commandments of God, you know, sometimes you're like, uh-oh, God's going to tell me what I'm not supposed to do. Well, in this one, God tells them twice, here's what you're supposed to do. And it tells us in Deuteronomy 16, 13 through 15, you shall observe the Feast of Tabernacles seven days when you have gathered from your threshing floor and from your winepress. And you shall rejoice in your feast at you and your son and your daughter and your male servant and your female servant and the Levite, the stranger and the fatherless and the widow who are within your gates. Seven days you shall keep a sacred feast to the Lord your God in the place which the Lord chooses because the Lord your God will bless you in all your produce and in all the work of your hands so that you surely rejoice. This festival was known for its rejoicing. I mean, after all, it was sort of like a mandatory national camping trip. Pretty fun, right? And how long is this national camping trip going to be? It's seven days. Okay. Now, as you know, it was one of three of the pilgrimage feasts where all of Israel would go up to Jerusalem to celebrate this feast. And in this feast that lasted for seven days, well, you're going to soon find out I'll give you a little sneak preview. It's actually a week and a day. It's seven days and then the eighth day, or what was known as the great day. So here we go. It lasted for a week. They would build these booths. They would build them on the walls of the city. They would build them on the roofs of their houses. They would build them out in the streets. They would build them out in the fields. And these booths, they could be all colorful on the outside. They could be very ornate on the outside. But one of the rules of building these, um, these tabernacles was that the roof, could, it had to be either palm branches or bamboo. And you had to be able to see through the roof to be able to see the stars. So that was one of the rules. It couldn't be a solid roof. You had to be able to see the stars. Because to them, they knew that this wasn't going to be a permanent dwelling place for them. This was a temporary dwelling place to remind them of God's faithfulness to them. His faithfulness to bring them through the wilderness. Through their wanderings in the desert for 40 years. His faithfulness to bring them into the promised land. And so, like I said, one of those requirements was to be able to see through the roof, to see the stars. To see those same stars, the stars that declare his glory. The stars that declare his faithfulness. The same stars that God told Abraham 
Abraham, look at the stars. If you can number them, you know, that is how numerous your descendants will be. Here's a man whose name means father of a multitude, and he has no kids. I mean, that's like, that's like a baby orange, you know? Its name is orange, but it's green. <laughs> you're like, I'm an orange. Yeah, right, you're a green. Um, you know, I'm father of a multitude. Yeah, I have no kids. Look at them stars, Abraham. Even though you have to wait for it, I will meet you, and I will fulfill my promises. The same stars that were to remind God's people of his faithfulness. In Psalm 8, 1 through 4, O Lord our God, or Lord our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth, who set your glory above the heavens, out of the mouth of babes and nursing infants. You have ordained strength because of your enemies, that you may silence the enemy and the avenger. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, The moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you're mindful of him? And the son of man that you visit him. Those same stars that are to set our hearts at wonder. When I consider them, what am I that you'd be mindful of me? What is the son of man that you would visit or that you would come in order to help and give aid? Like what are we that God would be faithful to us, provide for us, to see us through? And God brought them out of Egypt. God brought them through the wilderness. God brought them into the promised land. God is a saving God. God keeps his promises. And that's one of the things that they would celebrate in the Feast of Tabernacles. It was a feast that spoke to them also of their unity as a people. To this day, they celebrate tabernacles with what's called the four kinds. It comes from Leviticus 23, verse 40. And you shall take for yourself on the first day the fruit of beautiful trees, branches of palm trees, the boughs or boughs of leafy trees, and willows of the brook. And you shall rejoice before the Lord your God for seven days. So they would bind these four together, a palm branch, two willows, three myrtles, which is cool because um, my sister-in-law, her name is Hadassah, and the word is Hadassahim. So it's the plural of the myrtle trees, right? The three. Anyway, you're like, that's fun. Cool. I'm like, hey, that's my sister-in-law's name in plural. (laughs) Fancy. Um, And one citron. And they would bind these four together. And to them, it was a symbol of their unity. Like, yeah, okay, here we are. We're all one people, but we're not the same. We have our diversities, but we're one. And they would take these four kinds with them everywhere during this feast of, of tabernacles. For seven days. Seven days plus one. The eighth day was considered the great day of the feast. And all through, they would celebrate God. Leviticus 23, 33 through 36. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel. The 15th day of this seventh month shall be the Feast of Tabernacles for seven days to the Lord. On the first day, there shall be a holy convocation. You shall do no customary work on it. For seven days you shall offer an offering made by fire to the Lord, 
On the eighth day, you shall have a holy convocation and you shall offer an offering made by fire to the Lord. It is a sacred assembly and you shall do no customary work on it. So it's seven days everywhere you read it. And then there's this and then there's the eighth day. And this was considered that great day of the feast. Now remember, the setting is Jesus' unbelieving brothers come to him and they say, Hey, like if you want to be made known, then make yourself known. Like adapt marketing methods. Like you're trying to become famous. Like go where the people are. Go to Jerusalem. And yet Jesus knew that they wanted to kill him there. He knew his hour had not yet come. And so, he didn't go to Jerusalem at the start of the feast. His unbelieving brothers went. His disciples went. But when Jesus went to this feast, he went alone. Now, as the people of Israel would gather together for these festivals, they knew how long it would take for them to travel from, say, Capernaum, where they were, to Jerusalem. They knew how long if they were in the farther regions, if they were Jews that were in Rome or if they were Jews that in Egypt, they knew how long it would take them to get to Jerusalem and they would account for that so that when they arrived, they would arrive in time for the feast. And from all the outskirts as they would go up, remember like talking about it last week, always going up to Jerusalem because even though geographically there are higher places, there, are, there is no higher place on earth than Jerusalem because it is the place the name of God dwells. And so they were always going up no matter where they were coming from. And as they would go up, they would sing these psalms of ascent, praising the Lord. And as the roads would connect, next thing you know, the caravan would grow. The caravan would grow until finally it was just not just, I'm from Capernaum. I'm from Tiberias. It's, we're the people of Israel, and we've gathered in Jerusalem to celebrate the Lord. And in that celebratory caravan, the unbelieving brothers went, the disciples went, but Jesus didn't go yet. He went alone. John 7, 8 through 10, you go up to the feast. I am not yet going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. When he had said these things to them, he remained in Galilee, but his brothers had, but when his brothers had gone up, then he also went up to the feast, not openly, but as it were, in secret. And sometime in the middle of that seven days, plus one, he arrived. And immediately when he arrived, he began to preach and teach openly. Uh, not that, not a blank screen, but 714. <laughs> Now, about the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and taught. Now, imagine the scene, okay? There in Jerusalem, it's the Feast of Tabernacles. Pilgrims are coming from everywhere. Jews from all over have heard about Jesus. There they all are gathered now. They have their tents built. They're living in tents in the fields and on the roads and on the rooftops and on the walls. In the middle of all of this celebration, there was a water oblation, a ceremony that involved water and the sacrifice, which we'll talk about later. There was this lighting of candles, a ceremony that occurred every evening. It was a festival everywhere you looked. But underneath all of the festivities, there was murmuring going on. There was this low um, discussion 
And that discussion, the people were secretly talking to one another about Jesus because they'd all heard about him. But they'd all heard different things. They wanted to know one thing. They wanted to know for themselves who he is. Jesus arrives in Jerusalem, somewhere in the middle of the festivities. The people know that there's a prophecy concerning the Messiah that God would send his messenger to the people. In Malachi 3 verse 1, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant, in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. And so where does Jesus go? He goes to the temple mount. The very place that the Jews have been plotting to kill Jesus. The very place that they're discussing, how can we execute him? And remember, we talked about it last week. It was from the time that he healed the man at the pool of Bethesda. From that point, they all plotted, they were plotting to kill him. And the very place where they all hang out and they do their religious thing, and secretly they're like, we're going to kill this guy. That's where he goes, and he publicly teaches. The most risky place for him to be. And he publicly begins to teach. Now that has an impact on the people. We see in verse 25 to verse 27, now some of them from Jerusalem said, is not this he whom they seek to kill? But look, he speaks boldly, and they say nothing to him. Do the rulers know indeed that this is truly the Christ? However, we know where this man is from. But when the Christ comes, no one knows where he's from. So they see Jesus' boldness. They see the boldness in him going to the very place that is the most risky for him and preaching and teaching openly. I mean, we saw last week in verse 13 that no one in Jerusalem was willing to speak openly about him because they were afraid of the Jews. They knew that if people overheard them talking about Jesus, that would have severe ramifications to them. So if they were going to talk about Jesus, they wouldn't talk about him out loud. Did you hear about this Jesus guy? I mean, I'm hearing stuff about what he's doing in Galilee. No one's done anything like this. Like, they say he might be the Messiah. Oh, here, sh, sh, here comes the Jew. Here comes the, here comes the Pharisee. Sh, sh, sh. What are you guys talking about? Oh, you know, Jewish stuff. <laughs> but they wouldn't say out loud. The very one that they wouldn't speak out openly about because they were afraid of the Jews, he goes to the very heart of the hornet's nest, the very place where it's like their domain, and he teaches. Now, I love that. It's not that he's out like, he's not like, like preaching is different, right? There's this loud proclamation telling people what to do. But when someone shows up and they're like, hey, I'm going to teach you some stuff. Right? Like, you're going you're gonna to teach us. We're the religious leaders. Like, you're, you're the hillbilly from Galilee. Like, we went to rabbinical school. Like, we don't even know where you learned how to read. And you're going to teach us. And the people, they saw his boldness in doing this. The courage that it took him to do that. But they also saw the fact that the religious leaders didn't stop him. And they're like, there's got to be a reason why they're not stopping him. Like, why isn't this happening? 
maybe they know that he actually is the Messiah and they're afraid to do anything about it. So that's what they're wondering. They're starting to believe. But the interesting thing is they took it straight to, not that he's a prophet, not that he is some good godly man. They took it straight to that he is the Messiah, the hope of Israel. And at that time, that prophecy that we saw in Malachi, behold, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. Now that one speaks of John the Baptist, remember? And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, even the capital M, messenger of the covenant, in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. That, it connects the fact of the Messiah with him being the Lord whom you seek and that it's actually his temple. But they interpreted the he will come suddenly to his temple as no one knows where he's going to come from. He's just going to appear on the scene without any real record. We won't be able to trace his lineage. So some ask, well, how can this be the Messiah? I mean, we know that he comes, Jesus comes from Nazareth. We've, we've seen him in Galilee. We know where he's coming from. How can he be the Messiah? So there was some confusion, but it was specifically about him being the Messiah, the hope of Israel. Now, Jesus ignores all their mistakes and all their concepts, and he goes right to the heart of the problem in verse 28 and 29. It says, Then Jesus cried out as he taught in the temple, saying, You both know me, and you know where I'm from. And I have not come of myself, but he who sent me is true, whom you do not know. But I know him, and I am, for I am from him, and he sent me. They said, well, we know where Jesus is from, Nazareth, Galilee. And Jesus cuts right through it. Do you really know me? Not Nazareth. They didn't even know about Bethlehem. We'll learn next week in verse 40 through 42. Because they're like, hey, Messiah, he should come from Bethlehem. And they don't think Jesus fits that bill. But, you know, we know the Gospels, right? We know during the, you know, the, the census and all of the Christmas story. Do you know where I'm from? I think you do. Because <laughs> it's the way he says it. You know where I'm from. And it's as if he's saying, we're not talking about geography here. You know where I'm from. It's what he'd been saying all along. In John 6, not the blank screen one, but there. 32 through 34, then Jesus said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, Moses did not give you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Then they said to him, Lord, give us this bread always. You know where I came from? He says, your heart's been telling you, and you see my miracles, you've seen what I've done, and he who sent me is true. But here's the problem. You don't know the one who sent me. That's the problem. What? Jesus, you don't want to say that to these guys. Like, you just came to their major dwelling you know you came to the hub of Judaism right where all of their version of Judaism was happening right where they all hang out all their priests and their scholars and their Levi 
um, Levites. They're, they're Levites. You went right to them. And now you're saying, you don't know the God that you talk about. Could you imagine that? The audacity. These are the guys that spend their entire lives making everyone think that they know God. It's like what Jesus said about them in another place, though. In Mark 7, verse 6, he answered and said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites. As it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. They are the acknowledged religious leaders of the nation. And he says to them, you don't know God. Like, why would he do this? Because you know the reaction. You can anticipate it. Is Jesus, was he like some kind of a troublemaker? Who likes to like troll these guys? We know that term, right? Because people in the comment section of news articles, there's always those people that are trolls. Right? In social media, there's always those people that are trolling. Now, I can't figure it out if they're talking about, like, the ogre that hides under the bridge or the fisherman who's just dragging a lure through to see who will bite. One way or the other, you know, like, you're expecting some kind of a reaction. I don't know which one is the etymology of that expression. But, but then we see these guys, and it's like they get home from work, and they're like, let's see who we can upset in the world today. I live for this stuff. Whoa, these guys are so mad at me. Yeah. You know, Facebook jail again. Woohoo. You know, like, hmm, yeah. And then they read statements like this by Jesus and they go, yeah, Jesus is just like me. But let me tell you, it's always foolish to try to make God in your image. To start with you as if you're the standard and then drag God into your standard. That's not. That's not good Christianity, okay? Don't do that, okay? It uh, should be the other way around. Like, it's he who made us, not we ourselves, and we're to give him glory. So they would assume, oh, Jesus, he just, he just loves to just, like, go and, and agitate the angry dogs. Like, there's some dogs in my neighborhood just down the street. There's these two dogs, and they're cute dogs, but you can't even walk by that house without the dogs just barking, barking, barking. And they get so aggressive. And they're nice dogs, but they just they feel like that's their place in the world. They have to bark at everyone. If I was coming home one day and I see my kids down at that house where we know those dogs are easily upset. And if my kids are like shaking the fence and kicking the fence, oh, we're just messing with the dogs. I'd be like, get home. You're in trouble. Because that's bad behavior. Jesus isn't just out there behaving badly. It's not that he's just a troublemaker. He's not even out trying to overthrow any systems. Which I think nowadays we want to think that's what Jesus was all up to. He was trying to overthrow the system. If that's what he was trying to do, he failed. He came to conquer sin and death. He came to, to, to bring about a new people, right, that were like born not of, of water and of blood, but of the Spirit, a new people. Now, there's coming a day where when you see, want to see him overthrow systems, there's coming a day when systems are getting overthrown, and it's going to be awesome. And he will, like, like when Jesus does stuff, he sets the standard. <laughs> like, you want to see how to overthrow systems? Like, 
How about I just erase everything and establish my kingdom? Like, there's, there's that one. Like, that's going to be great. But why is he provoking these guys? He knows what the reaction is. Look, sometimes to just simply tell the truth is going to make people crazy. And Jesus isn't out saying anything other than the truth. Today we live in a day where people love their fantasies. They love their falsehoods. They love their world of delusion. And then they get mad at you when you refuse to be a supporting actor in their drama. This is my fantasy. This is what I am. You need to act along with me. I, I, I'm sorry, I, I can't act along with you. Like, there's also this other thing called reality. And I'm not going to, like, be, become a performing actor in your script to the contradiction of reality. And they lose their minds when, that, when you refuse that. Well, in our day and age, the fantasies of, you know, there, there's so many different you know, worlds of delusion that people get mad when you don't act along. In that day and age, it was predominantly religious. It was a religious fairy tale. It was a form of godliness, but denying the power. And when the real thing shows up, of course it's offensive. That thing that you guys are all talking about, like, I, here I am in the volume of the book it is written of me to do your will, O God. No! not you. We need to figure out how to kill you. It's not right. You see the problem. Just him being there was going to be offensive to their, like, their mirage. It looked like it was substance, but it wasn't. Our Lord is the very epitome of truth. Paul describes the distinction that the gospel makes, but he writes this to a world of predominantly Gentiles. Now, what Jesus, who Jesus is addressing here is Jews, but it's the same distinction. In Ephesians 4, 18 through 21, he says, having their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that's in them, because of the hardening of their heart, who, being past feeling, have given themselves over to lewdness, to work all uncleanness with greediness. But you have not so learned Christ, if indeed you have heard him and have been taught by him as the truth is in Jesus. When he speaks the truth, it upsets people because they love their lives. And so in verse 30 and 31, therefore they sought to take him, but no one laid hands on him because his hour had not yet come. And many of the people believed in him and said, when the Christ comes, will he do more signs than these, which this man has done? It's not uncommon whenever the gospel goes out to have these two different reactions. Some people are going to get upset and some people are going to believe. And Jesus, what he's doing here is he's just taking down the facades. He's making people see not so much, well, yeah, the truth about him, but also the truth about themselves. He's showing people who they really are. And yet we also see in this the relentless, 
reality of the love of God who wants to change and heal and to restore a fallen people. And this gospel, it causes division at times. That's the nature of truth. When you believe it and you obey it, it's going to create a division. And that's what we see happening here. So from that, in verse 32 to verse 36, then the Pharisees heard the crowd murmuring these things concerning him. What, what things? Like, when the Christ comes, will he do more miracles than this guy? Like, this guy's got to be the Messiah. That's where their hearts and minds are going. The Pharisees hear this. And it says, and the Pharisees and the chief priests sent officers to take him. Then Jesus said to them, I shall be with you a little while longer, and then I go to him who sent me. You will seek me and not find me, and where I am you cannot come. Then the Jews said among themselves, where does he intend to go that we shall not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What is this thing that he said, you will seek me and not find me? And where I am, you cannot come. See, they send the officers to have him arrested. The crowd is starting to believe. Jesus knows that his hour is coming, but it has not yet come. In fact, his hour is approximately six months later. Because the next time he goes up to Jerusalem will be at the time of Passover. And at that time, he will be apprehended and he will offer his life as a sacrifice on behalf of us all. But it's not yet. Six months away, but not yet. This wasn't his time. But they don't know what he's talking about. What are you talking about? You're going to go away. And where you go, where we can't come. And then from that, in verse 37 through 39. On the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke concerning the Spirit, whom those believing in him would receive. For the Holy Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Now, before I go on in this, I want to tell you, I'm not going to answer all your questions in this passage. In fact, next week, I'm going to start in this passage, and we're going to talk more concerning the Holy Spirit specifically. But remember earlier how I said that the Feast of Tabernacles was a seven-day feast plus one. Seven days of festival, seven days of required rejoicing where they would sit in those tabernacles and they would look up at the stars and they would remember God's faithfulness and how God keeps his promises. But the eighth day was considered the great day of the feast. The eighth day, they didn't have to be in no booths. The eighth day was actually considered a solemn day. Now, there were a couple of other events that happened on this last day, this great day of the feast that are fascinating. One of those details is that on that day, on the eighth day, the Jews, they have a schedule for reading the Torah. And they would, on, on that schedule, they would read through the Torah, 
And on the eighth day, the great day of the feast, that was the day that they would finish reading the Torah. And that would be the day that they would start reading the Torah again. So it was a day that they had read through and they had come right down to the end. It was an end of the law and the prophets. And yet it was the beginning of the law and the prophets the same day. But as they would read through the Torah and they would get to Malachi, they'd be reading this, the last chapter, these prophecies of the coming of the Messiah. So this would be on their minds. Not only that, but this was the seventh and final feast of the Jewish calendar. So it would be their last festival of the year. And on that day, the day that the law and the prophets were finished, the day in the law and the prophets began, the day of the last festival, that's the day that Jesus shows up and cries out. It's the last day, the great day of the feast. Now, one of those things that's spoken of of the Messiah when he comes, which is clearly in their hearts all through this, is the prophecy in Haggai, chapter 2, verse 7, that says, And I will shake all the nations, and they shall come to the desire of all nations. And I will fill this temple with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The eighth day was a solemn day. All through the feast, seven days, the priests would go down to the bottom corner, the southern tip of the city, old city of Jerusalem, and there at the very bottom of it, there's what's called the Pool of Siloam. And from that same water source, that was where King David was anointed as king, where Solomon was anointed as king, and from that water source, for seven days, the priests would go and take a jug of water and they would celebrate this water all the way up, up to the southern steps, into the Temple Mount, there to the altar, and they would mingle this water with wine upon the altar. And they would celebrate because they're thinking about all of God's faithfulness over the, those seven days. All of God's faithfulness. They would be looking at the stars, remembering how he is the God who keeps his promises, who brings his people to that place of the fulfillment of promises. He is the one who, who, who provides aid for his people. And they were rejoicing. This ceremony of the water was full of rejoicing. The Mishnah says this. He that has never seen the joy of the ceremony of the water drawing has never in his life seen joy. I mean, that's, that's how elevated this ceremony of that, that part of the feast over the seven days was in their mind. And when it would take place, the Levites, they'd start playing music and singing the temple area. There would be these three giant golden candles uh, that, that people would climb up ladders to light and it would be said that from all of Jerusalem, you could see those three candles burning at nighttime when this, um, the water drawing had happened. It had been poured out on the altar. They would blow, uh, later on in the night, they'd blow the shofar three times. It was said that during that part of the, the festival, people that were normally of a reputation of being cool and collected, that even they would like let loose a little bit and start dancing. <laughs> Be like, oh, look at Uncle. He's happy. 
this is, a, this is a, well, if he can be happy, like, you know. And you know those kind of people, right? They're just like, everything is fine. <laughs> and then you see them, and you tell a joke, and they're like, ha, ha. You're like, whoa, that was a good one. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Even those guys would rejoice for seven days. And all through the ceremony, they would reflect on Isaiah 12, 2 and 3. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid. For Yah, the Lord, is my strength and my song. He also has become my salvation. Therefore, with joy, you will draw water from the wells of salvation. You would reflect on this. But that eighth day was different. That eighth day, that great day of the feast, they would line up along the walkway from the pool of Siloam to the Temple Mount. Just like before, they would be there in expectation but also, it would turn to sadness because no water came from the pool of Siloam to the Temple Mount. Because this was the day that they finished reading the Torah. And they read in Malachi, there in chapter 3, that he will come into his temple. That he will fill it with glory. So that eighth day was that day where they were longing for God, who keeps his promises, to keep his promise concerning the Messiah. And as they're waiting for the water and no water's coming, the sadness of here's a promise that has been left unfulfilled for us. And on this day where the priests, the Levites, the Pharisees would all be formally gathered for this aspect of their celebration, the eighth day. Jesus stood and cried out with a loud voice. He wanted everyone to hear the good news. He wants you to hear this good news. If anyone thirsts, come to me and drink. Now, at the wedding in Cana of Galilee, it was this. In John 2, 6 and 7, now there were set there six water pots of stone. Look at this. According to the manner of purification of the Jews, those water pots had a specific purpose. It was religious. It was water pots for the purification of the Jews, containing 20 or 30 gallons apiece. Jesus said to them, Fill the water pots with water. Here's these ceremonial water pots, and they don't even have water in them. And Jesus says, fill the water pots. And they filled them up to the brim. Now, we know the story. That water in those pots that were meant for religious purification, as the, Jews, as, as the disciples came and took the water and brought them to the master of the feast, that that water became wine. And the testimony, the master of the feast, he said to him, every man at the beginning sets out the good wine. And then when the, the guests have well drunk, then the inferior, you've kept the good wine until now. This beginning of signs did Jesus in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him. 
Nicodemus admitted it. In John 3, 1 through 2, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher. Come from God, for no one can do these things, these signs that you do, unless God is with him. And to Nicodemus, you must be born again. To the woman at the well in Samaria in John 4.10, Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. And to those in Capernaum in John 6.35, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger. He who believes in me shall never thirst. And for us here this morning, there is a longing in each of us, a longing of the soul. And just like on that day where the water pots that were for cleansing were found dry, Jesus not only filled those water pots, but he also made them wine for rejoicing. On the day when the water ran out in the temple and the people's hearts were sad. And on the day when you seemed to run dry. On the day when your heart is heavy and your hope is worn thin, Jesus stood on that day and he cried out to the multitudes, If anyone thirsts, come to me and drink and you will be changed. For out of your innermost being will flow rivers of living water. And that is something that only the Messiah can do in your life. At best, all you'll ever be able to do is maybe carve out something that might try to hold some water, but you will never be flowing unless it's a source that is greater than yourself. And so when your, when your joy runs out, when the timetables seem longer than you thought they should, when you're longing, we know that God keeps his promises. And he has kept his promise to provide for you the Savior, Christ Jesus our Lord.